0: Security Trust at CST, and the question I pose is, why is it protecting British Jewry? And uh, in truth, uh, it begins with uh, at least an opening understanding that I uh, had the opportunity to spend the the better part of a sabbatical uh, year in in England, and uh, a number of works that I did came out of my time there. I had the chance to speak extensively and interview many, many people, those involved in the Jewish community, those involved in policy, in Westminster, and in various aspects and areas uh, of British political life and Jewish life. Uh, a lot of the work that I have been producing since that time comes out of uh, that experience, and uh, including uh, the material uh, that I'd like to share with you this morning. It was not necessary for the 87-year-old Israeli Prime Minister, president Shimon Peres to tell Professor Benny Morris in his far-ranging interview published in Tablet that, quote, there is in England a saying that an anti-Semite is someone who hates the Jews more than is necessary, end of quote. Despite his subsequent qualifying statements, Peres's remarks were ridiculously undiplomatic and impolitic, but sadly true. Only this past year, Robert Wistrich, and especially Anthony Julius, have laid out in hundreds of pages the present and past history of English anti-Semitism far more eloquently and extensively than, than I could do, can do, or would bother trying to do. This paper is not there for an effort to question their observations and analyses or even qualify them, although obviously some of the work that uh, they deal with I comment on indirectly. <coughs> recent corroborative evidence in England concerning anti-Semitism is wide and broad-based. It has ranged from the recent food boycotts, divestment initiatives, academic protests and political statements all of which are one of the latest in a wide range of contemporary initiatives to debase Jews, devalue Jewish contributions, and delegitimize Israel. At the end of these various demeaning attacks, the critics then suggest that they have no bone to pick with British Jews. They are merely protesting against the politics and policies of the government and the state of Israel. There is little to be added to that transparent charade at this conference. There is, however, a side to this discussion which does need to be discussed. What precisely is Anglo-Jury doing to combat contemporary anti-Semitism? More precisely, how effectively are the Jews of Britain demanding that governments work to combat anti-Semitism? Has a time arrived where Anglo-Jury needs to be more take on a more assertive role to demand that the bureaucracy and the political system take a much more serious posture and responsibility to protect Jews and to prevent anti-Semitism? Set the record straight at the outset. CST, the Community Security Trust, is the model of all Jewish defense organizations. It is serious, intense, efficient, and well-organized. The lay leaders, directors, the staff, and the volunteers have a total commitment to protecting the Jewish community and fighting anti-Semitism. CST demonstrates how research, activism, education, community relations and outreach can all be housed effectively under one roof in the Jewish diaspora for the purpose of fighting anti-Semitism. From its inception, CST has sought to ensure the safety of Jews and Jewish community throughout Great Britain. As CST states in its mission statement, and I quote, CST's aim is to provide the community with a high level of security, with as high a level of security as possible to combat these anti-Semitic and threats enabling Jewish community life to be open proud and strong end of quote CST has done remarkably well over 16 years over the 16 years of its existence it's recognized by the Jewish community the public the police etc for the extraordinary element of safety and security that is delivered and ensured for the Jews of Britain their leaders their schools their synagogues and other institutions They have done this despite the fact that the British Jewish community, Britain's Jewish community, has endured an extraordinary and alarming rise in anti-Semitic incidents, which, of course, CST and others have documented over the past 10 years. It is similarly clear that Anglo-Jury recognizes the importance of the role that CST plays in permitting Jews to live with a significantly higher level of physical safety and security. It's universally recognized that CST is on the front lines daily fighting anti-Semitism, be it with pu- making public statements in the media or insist- in assisting in responses to acts of vandalism or reporting actual physical threats against Jews. In recent years, in terms of visibility, CST has become one of the largest Jewish charitable organizations in Britain. I'll qualify that in a moment. The annual CST Gala fundraising dinner is one of the largest events. On the annual Britain's annual Jewish community organization organizational calendar, perhaps somewhat comparable to the annual spring banquet held at the policy conference of the Arab American Israel Public Affairs Committee (AIPAC) in Washington, D.C., the CSD dinner attracts political leaders and government officials from across the political spectrum. In 2010, there were 1,200 attendees at the gala. This dinner, which while clearly focused on the Anglo-Jewish community, is the most impressive public display of Jewish political clout presented by the usually reticent Anglo-Jewish community. The Jewish community's support for CSD can be measured best in the financial support that CSD receives from Anglo-Jews. According to the Charities Direct, the 2008 calendar year, CSD received contributions totaling 5.8 million pounds. By way of comparison, CSD's success it is worth noting on a national basis, aside from these groups directly, aside from those groups directly linked to Israel, or those providing social service care to Jews in need Jews in need, CST's fundraising success is quite remarkable. And I go through an analysis of the specific other groups and what they, what they uh, receive and don't receive and the extent to which CST is doing extraordinarily well. While there's much more to be said about CSD, its extraordinary effectiveness is also the basis for the questions and concerns that I alluded to earlier. To reiterate, CSD does an extraordinary job. What is problematic, however, is that at a theoretical, institutional, and political level, there are questions as to whether the British Jewish Committee should act more directly in fighting anti-Semitism in Great Britain. The question revolves around the issue of what, in a democracy, What to be the correct role of the state. Specifically, how effectively must the state protect its citizens? Coincident with that comes the question as to how much citizens should demand, i.e., pressure, the state to provide. And finally, what are the costs or gains for exerting that pressure? The state has a role to protect its citizens in the nation, both at home and abroad, by ensuring that all the citizens live in safety and security. Failure of a democratic government to perform this function effectively ought to call into question the role of the state. There has never been a serious question as to how far a state must go to protect its citizens from external threats, though there have always been policy debates as to the matter of priorities. It is when it comes to domestic dangers or internal threats that democracies have have historically had their most vigorous and vituperative, vituperative debates. Policy priorities and budgetary resources always engage a variety of ideological considerations. Nevertheless, there should be few differences as to the priorities of domestic protection and personal safety. Secondarily, and equally important, although a bit outside the major purview of this paper, is the matter of how Jewish charitable funds are being used in Britain. By dint of the existence of CST and its needs and the services it provides, one might consider what portion of those same resources and funds might be available if the state actually provided the necessary services to protect the Jewish community adequately from anti-Semitism. Now, we all know, for example, as it is in the States and elsewhere, that when it comes to anti-Semitism protecting Jews, you can always gin up the Jewish community and put up money. When it comes to matters like Jewish education, religious institutions, there's always a tremendous lag behind in terms of fundraising. That having been said, there's still this open question. Finally, the question arises, what could or should the Jewish community and its leadership do, if anything, to try to change the behavior of the state? Now, in my paper, I go through an extensive discussion of the work of David Miller, Michael Walzer, Robert Gooden, and others concerning the philosophical and theoretical questions involved as to what is and why the role of the state ought to be to protect its citizens, how they develop the various questions, I deal, obviously, with the entire question of um, the the nature of distributive justice, the alternatives and options of uh, particular ethical questions versus universalistic ethical issues, and how these theorists address the larger question of how far and to what extent the state should be involved. Uh, I'm not going to labor on it, just make a couple of comments that. I think point to the, the sharpness with which some of these questions should be should be looked at. Um, Walter, in his discussion, for example, talks about while the, while needs are subjective, the general welfare and security of citizens is clearly among the most basic and pivotal requirements that a government provide. Walter writes for. Quote, the first thing they, meaning members of a political community, owe, is the communal provision of security and welfare. Walter then, Walter then continues and explains how various communities throughout history, citing Athenian uh, attention to democracy, and uh, to drama on the one end of the fifth and fourth centuries and Jews focused on education during the Mid- Middle Ages. Drama and education were financed with money that could be used for services that modern societies view as far more important than just health care assistance. All of that having been said, when it comes to security, when it comes to physical protection, as Walzer points out in others, there is no option. According to their calculations, and that uh, to which I certainly agree, considering the, the, the number and amount of available services, government must provide for the needs of the community And until the accumulated wealth of its members is entirely wiped out, that obviously is not reached in Britain, there is no end to the amount of protection that they ought to be provided. If government does not want to cut existing programs to meet the request of a Jewish community, or any community, to protect them, they must amass the resources by increasing taxes. Historically, British Jews, however, have never sought a high profile. Choosing to assert a high profile would mean urging a shift in government and urging a shift in government priorities as well as organizational behavior. It is precisely these demands that the Jewish community should be making, I suggest, and that are and that are the very services that the state should be providing. In fact, curiously, one of the positions expressed in opposition to making this demand suggests that demanding that the state carry out its responsibilities to protect synagogues, Jewish schools, Jewish leaders, and Jewish institutions will necessitate providing a similar set of protection services to Christians as well as Muslim institutions. Indeed, if couched in in terms of a universalistic interest, and even if presented by a joint or broad-based coalition, it might enable the Jewish community to help itself in its own needs, while at the same time providing an opportunity and interfaith dialogue and joint community action. This could be with Christian groups, Muslim groups, Sikhs, and all other denominations. And thus, having also given a philosophical and ideological development and direction, let me comment a little bit about why, organizationally, I believe, uh, the the situation in England demands change. Um, To to give this a clearer context, let's let's reflect a little bit on the nature of how anglo Jury has behaved and is organized. In response to anti Semitism. While some of the things, some things have changed after the, uh, after the war, there, are, there still remain a political social ambivalence among Jews as to how to respond to the British government. Their behavior continued to reflect the traditional confusion between two conflicting streams in English society. On the one hand, there was the espoused openness and tolerance inherent in British democracy which demands and prides itself an acceptance of the other. On the other hand, for the English, acceptance of, or tolerance had genuine limits. It generally meant to stay in your place, but not to demand too much and to move you, or you leave. Towards Jews, in other words, this was a benign or enlightened form of anti-Semitism, precisely the anti-Semitism to which Shimon Peres referred. Historically in Britain, except for the medieval blood libels that led to the expulsion of the Jews in 1290, once they were readmitted tacitly under Cromwell in 1656, there, was never, there were never any pogroms or physical attacks waged against the Jews. Jews were welcomed and tolerated, but never really, truly wanted, desired, or accepted, except for the job that they could do to help the existing order. Counts frequently in euphemistic language or packaged in legalistic codes, this situation, I would suggest, has persisted until recent times. On financial commercial circles in Britain today, relations with Jews appear to be quite cordial. There remains an underlying presence of anti-Semitism, which is not discussed. When questions of Israel are added to the mix, anti-Semitism becomes more transparent and even acceptable. Whether it appears in the roughness and expletives expressed against Israelis and Jews at football games, or whether it's manifested in the genteel proper dining conversation among the chattering class. Anti-Semitic biases consistently reared their head. In considering the political behavior and organization of the Jewish community, it's clear that in a certain point, point, for distinct reasons, Anglo-Jews changed their modus operandi, although has not been simple and has not been without great foreboding. Uh, I discussed the nature of the. the the Six-Day War, how that affected the psychology of of Jews everywhere throughout the world, and, of course, uh, in Britain as well. I also discussed at great length uh, the nature of the Soviet Jewry movement, how that universalized and allowed Jews to engage as well with uh, those on the left and bring them into an issue that was, in fact, Jewish. Um, And uh, I'm not going to try to go into that. I just would like to recall for you that there's a classic timidity in the British uh, Jewish community, uh, and how they approached government was through the using still the um, model uh, of political advocacy, even to and through uh, contemporary times, I would suggest. Um, Coincident with these political events, the Six-Day War, Soviet Jewry, and so on, there have also been institutional changes within, Anglo, within the Jewish community which have affected the organization, the operations, and the political behavior of Anglo Jewry. While many of these changes initially were related to Israel, they were also, fo- they, they were also as a result of the enabling Jews to become more focused as a result of their engagement on fighting for Soviet Jews. Specifically. It is well worth noting the following political arrangements that have developed between Anglo-Jews and the British parliamentarians. For example, beginning quietly in uh, 1957, Labor Friends of Israel was established. Through the LFI, anglo jewry made a major effort to cultivate and organize supporters for Israel in Parliament and to influence how some in Britain saw Israel, Jews, and anti-Semitism. The creation of LFI was followed later in nineteen seventy four when its counterpart, Conservative Friends of Israel, was formed. These groups really took hold during the Thatcher years, and <coughs> these party affiliated groups sought to encourage MPs within each party to visit Israel to gain a first hand understanding of how the state of Israel saw its problems in the Middle East conflict. It was hoped that these visits would result in MPs being more aware and sensitive to how the government and the people of Israel assessed matters related to their own security and safety. In terms of the anti-Israel anti-Semitism that is rampant today on many British Jewish on a, many British university campuses, it is important to note that already in the 1970s, an important pro-Israel effort was initiated on these campuses throughout the country. While LFI and CFI would work to raise an awareness and sensitivity, sensitivity to Israel in Parliament, on campuses, local, regional, and national officers of the National Union of Students were interacting with their politically active Jewish contacts, and counterparts who were part of the Union of Jewish Students, which was established officially in 1973. These relationships ought not to be minimized. It is suggested, and this comes out consistently in all the discussions, that virtually no factor would be more important the dramatic shift of support by British Jews to the Labor Party at the end of the Thatcher years, and especially in the 1990s when the close relationships were formed at universities beginning in the late 70s by Jewish and non-Jewish political leaders. I should also point out that um, when you interview MPs or or their assistants and and you talk to uh, uh, members, it's very, very clear to them how they built friendships and relationships. And there's a mapping that I did between uh, contacts that people had and the people that they knew at university and how that developed in terms of the strengthening of relationships between Jewish leadership and political uh, access entree and involvement. For the new labor party it was a double win. British Jews, even on the more left-wing campuses, saw the new labor party shift its backing more demonstrably in <clears throat> support of defending Israel, safety, and security. As a result, many Jewish campus activists also transferred their allegiance, allegiances to the new labor party. These ties became the bedrock for many of the strong relationships of labor. Which, which many Jews have still maintained and served later so well in the Blair years. Uh, so finally, LFI, LFI and CFI fostered friendships that were established on university campuses as the campus leaders moved into political and commercial arenas as well. Uh, well one further additional fo- phenomenon that occurred in this arena was uh, the creation of BICOM, the British Israel Communications Research Center? Operating somewhat similarly to APAC, BICOM sought to address on a nonpartisan basis the entire array of issues between Great Britain and Israel. It supplied media information, fact sheets, briefing programs, and so on. Its existence alone is significant in terms of the relationship, and it was further example of Anglo Jewish empowerment. As relates more directly to anti Semitism uh, and remembering the Holocaust, in 1988, a joint venture of government, political forces, and private charity created the Holocaust Educational Trust. It sought to emphasize the use of formal and informal education about the Holocaust, not only to teach about the past, but to prevent any further occur- similar occurrences. It also sought to affect curriculum changes in schools while a long time coming. As a result of the work of the Holocaust Educational Trust, since 1991, the government now requires school curriculum in England, Wales, and most of Scotland to contain a component on the Holocaust in the history studies of students between the ages of 11 and 14. In addition, the government sponsors and the Holocaust Educational Trust conducts a travel program each year to Auschwitz-Birkenau for two 16-year-old students from every secondary school in the country. Beginning in the fall of 2009, the Holocaust Educational Trust began conducting teacher training programs, jointly sponsored by a private grant and government funds. To the focus, to this, the focus was to teach out against genocide and anti-Semitism in general, and the Holocaust in particular. And of course, the establishment of uh, Holocaust Memorial Day, the, the wing of the the um, uh, the, the uh, London National War Museum are other manifestations of further work in this regard. Uh, I think that uh, I, I want to make a quick reference to uh, two other things in this area, uh, one of which is correct. First, uh, the work, uh, one of the done by um, um, my, my colleagues here, who were were at one point very involved in, in as you know, the Anglo-Jewish community, um, in investigating the behavior and conduct of the various organizations, especially the board of deputies, and produced uh, lots and lots of recommendations specifically in how to change the organizational life uh, of, it, of of the community. And finally, uh, in terms of the Jewish community, the creation of CST. Nothing rivals the success and the ability and, and the creation of CST. Um, it began in the 1980s as a community security organization of the Board of Deputies. Uh, as such, it sought to continue the mission established in the 1930s when some of its forebears had served as the Jewish Defense Organization against Oswald Moles. Gerald Ronson formed CST for the purpose of protecting Jews and Jewish institutions in Britain from anti-Semitic threats and the tax. It obtained its own tax-exempt status in 1984, 1994, With Ronson as the chair, and Richard Benson as the chief executive. The CST believed it was time to place the issue of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic acts directly before the Jewish community. They also opted, as I think I suggest, in trying to change the, 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 the functioning of the community itself. Finally, in this, rea- in this area in Westminster, there are also some movement. After many years of actively working in the House of Commons as as a lay leader, as well as a lay leader in the Jewish community, Gremel Janner, the MP, now Lord Janner, decided to formally organize an all-parliamentary group on anti-Semitism. The establishment of this group considered today to have been largely a public admission by some of British British political leaders that 50 years after the Holocaust, anti-Semitism continued to be present in England and throughout the world. Labor MP John Manns elevation to direct the group, and his decision to revitalize it in August of 2005. And the establishment of commission of inquiry under the leadership of uh, Dr. Dennis McShane, uh, MP, was the, probably the most significant political action taken uh, in this area. For the, for the Americans here who don't know, I mean, all party parliamentary groups are as meaningful generally as what we call in the state's political caucuses. They're there to make the pressure groups, the interest groups, happy to make everybody feel good. They don't have a major function in general. They sit, they meet once a year, twice a year, they raise a bit of money, they do a little visibility. They don't do anything. That's what's so extraordinary, in fact, about this particular group. It actually moved dramatically ahead. Uh, man successfully brought in the ending Ian Duncan Smith, the former leader and now member of the cabinet, uh, uh, the, the t- former Tory leader and now member of the cabinet again, and uh, Chris Yoon uh, also a former uh, a leader of the Liberal Democrats and now also a member of the cabinet, to join in the leadership positions with the All Party Parliamentary Group. Other group, other members sat through sat together there. They, they held their investigation the Henta commission of inquiry, and they asserted that despite changes that have occurred in Britain since the Holocaust, anti-Semitism was still a very serious problem, which was now, now enjoined and inflamed in a major way by growing anti israel anti-Zionist feeling. As early as I, April 2004, Mann himself had said in Parliament, and I quote, the subterfuge that such people, that is, anti-Semites, used was Zionism. They seem to think that quoting the term Zionist made everything OK, and meant that they were attacking not Jewish people, but Zionists and the concept of Zionists. But that was a subterfuge, end of quote. The fact that the Commission inquiry successfully persuaded the Blair and Brown governments to issue their report in response to the uh, All-Party parliamentary, all parliamentary Group uh, initiative is itself unprecedented in according to many political scientists in terms of the, in Britain, in terms of the nature of, group, of these groups' behavior. In addition, the speed with which this was accomplished suggests not only the consensus that surrounded this issue, but also the political effectiveness of the group's leadership. It indicated undoubtedly that the group was well connected inside as well as outside of parliament, especially within the Labour Party. Furthermore, the ongoing and monitoring of the recommendations and their implementation suggests a genuine change in how far many segments of the political, legal, and constabulary forces are prepared to go to facilitate the investigation, minimization, and reduction of anti-Semitism in England. At the same time, that these positive and constructive moves occur, there continue to be and have grown over the past decade expressions of pent-up anger against Israel, Israelis, and British Jews. Due to the continuing unresolved tensions between Israelis and Palestinians. It is especially present on university campuses, at academic conferences, and in academic unions. While the inquiry and the government report, and obviously the International Parliamentary Congress, which it, at its urging was held uh, a little bit over a year ago, uh, are very significant to the situation in Britain following the war in Lebanon in the summer of 2006. The anti-Semitic activity on campuses, the continuation of the explosion after the uh, Gaza War, um, suggests clearly that the problem and the acuteness of the problem. Um, The May-June 2010 Gaza flotilla attack brought out some demonstrators, but nothing like those that have been seen previously. It doesn't suggest that the situation is under control. It suggests that it didn't happen in response to this event as badly or as demonstrably as it had happened elsewhere. Uh, now, let me try to put together something quickly on the, the nature of the politics and the policy direction change that ought to be developed. As has the entire Jewish world, Anglo-Jewy, changed since the Holocaust in how they view issues of anti-Semitism after 6 million Jews were destroyed simply because they were Jewish, nothing can be the same. The changes in England become more evident Become evident more than 40 years ago, became, became more evident have, me, have, have, Became evident more than 40 years ago, developed more clearly over the past 20 years, and have become sharper since 9 11 and since 7 7. British Jews do feel more secure, not because of the disappearance of anti Semitism, but because they now have a different voice and new options as a community, they have become more responsive, and the community's architecture has been reshaped. The Jewish community today is better able to respond to the significant, even increasing, anti-Semitism written. While traditional forms of anti-Semitism continue to exist, they have been surpassed today by the growing anti-Israel, anti-Zionist feeling, about which we have discussed extensively here, which seek to demonize and marginalize Israel. And to then assert that such attacks against the Jewish state are not evidence of anti Semitism. As has been catalogued by the CST, the proponents of attacks against Jews today are directly linked to events in the Middle East or associated with attacks against Jews. Uh, Jews today are such outbreaks frequently led by academics, human rights advocates, public intellectuals, and those on the political left endeavor to draw a fallacious distinction to justify anti-Israel behavior as not anti-Semitism. Support for the Palestinians generates significant demonstrations against Israel, more specifically against Jews, synagogues, cemeteries, Jewish institutions, and so on. The use of the apartheid image when speaking of Israel in a visual, verbal analogies to Nazis have become commonplace. place. This is the form of contemporary anti-Semitism. Um, And and as I suggested to you, the the, the nature of the the behavior in Westminster, the the nature of uh, uh, the CST has been very much a sea change in the British Jewish community. But there's something wrong here, as far as I can understand, with this more encouraging picture of Anglo Jewry. While progress has been made, changing people's attitudes and beliefs is much more challenging. There are some specific changes which I which I believe could be implemented that might reduce the level of visible anti-Semitism and the concomitant fear that it generates among Jews and within the Jewish community. It has been shown citizen protection is an obligation of the democratic state, and this responsibility is incumbent on the state at the expense of all others except external threats. Then there can and that there can be no compromise when citizens have demands and needs. Similarly, citizens in a democracy have the right to practice their religion without fear of possibly endangering themselves, their houses of worship, their schools, as well as their supporting institutions, their clerks, their professionals, and their leaders. When one faces possible physical danger in seeking to practice one's religion, the state is clearly not doing an effective job. In addition, if a state's inability to provide these fundamental guarantees necessitates a religious group to provide it for themselves, the state is at fault. As the labor MP, Dennis McShane, observed, quote, it is not right for any group of British citizens to dig into their own pockets because they feel there is not adequate protection for their right to express themselves religiously or culturally, end of quote. Regardless of how effective CST is in protecting the Jewish community, its use of incredibly generous charitable pounds for functions that the government ought to be performing is wrong on its face, as well as misplaced use of charity. At the end of the day, all governments are constrained by budgetary resources. Budget decisions are determined by political leaders who establish policies for the use of funds. The problem in the fight against anti-Semitism in Britain is that governments appear to be unwilling to make funds available. Have the police and other constabulary forces perform their appropriate role within the state. In the United States and in almost all other British oh, European democracies, on the other hand, police protect synagogues actively, institute regular surveillance, provide a regular police presence, active political, active presence. In Britain, attacks against Jews, defacing of Jewish property, public harassment, and intimidation are not addressed effectively enough by public authorities. Authorities do not do enough to prevent or deter such crimes from occurring. Providing Jewish citizens adequate protection and ensuring the security for all those seeking to practice their religion is essential. And it's not that it should fall on a private organization within the Jewish community. CS2 may be doing an outstanding job, but it is spending millions to perform a job the state must perform the Jewish community, this should no longer be an acceptable arrangement. Jews ought to demand that the state protect the Jewish community, its leaders, its houses of worship, and its communal institutions, its cemeteries, and its social service agencies. Worshippers attending synagogues or students attending Jewish schools must not be required to tolerate hateful speech, acts of incitement, bias crimes, or discriminatory actions. Perpetrators need need not to fear that they won't have adequate police protection. Much of this change can and must come with a change in attitude toward government and a more direct and frontal approach in advocacy by British Jews. Protection of Jews and Jewish interests in Britain is not the same as engaging in pro-Israel advocacy. One can make the case that Jews in Britain can and should seek to influence British policy in the, Brit- in the Middle East. How and even what positions to adopt can be debated. Demanding protection for domestic anti-Semitism, on the other hand, is not debatable. There should be no hesitation among Jews to make policy demands that will influence the state to provide adequate protection to all citizens for all and any biased crimes. For example, anti-Semitic outbursts and threats of physical attacks, plus an overall aura of fear as a result of the Israeli attack on the Gaza flotilla, while anticipated, was unacceptable. Civilized discussion over the wisdom and legitimacy of the policy is totally legitimate, but not anti-Semitic attacks against British Jews. Just as the British government needs to do, more, much, <clears throat> to, to, to do much more than issue statements, establish investigations, and provide funds for biased crime victims, the Jewish community needs to learn to be more assertive in both demanding the expenditure of resources by the state to prevent and deter anti-Semitic incidents. Admittedly, England is not the United States. 300,000 Jews do not compare to 6 million. Political systems are different, although both are forms of democracy. But persistent anti-Semitism and degrading of Jews seventy years after the Holocaust are intolerable, and demands tactical changes. As was Wallace discussed, the organized Jewish community has changed. Nothing can justify the timidity that persists, as far as I can tell, in how Jews <laughs> seek to confront their condition. The leaders of the Anglo Jewish community need to enter the 21st century. There is nothing to fear. No one has been killed in Britain since the 12th century. <coughs> they have to learn to petition government in a more active manner. Many Jews have felt uncomfortable being Jews in England, especially over the past 150 years, but Jews did not face physical attacks except for one or two slightly isolated incidents. Passivity and the mentality of our previous period no longer is appropriate. The model is slowly being displaced by more proactive and energized Jewish leadership, but far too slowly and meekly. A story told to me specifically by an insider in the Blair government points this out. A minister gives a Jewish leader his business card, which includes his mobile telephone number. He expects the number to be used. He does not expect the individual To suffer through days of telephone tag before getting resolution to oppressing matters. This individual said if he didn't want to have his mobile number, he wouldn't have given it to him. The leaders of the Anglo jury need to enter the twenty first century. There is a need to to fear, not, not to fear, any kind of repercussions. There is also a need for education. I discussed the nature of how education could be changed to, be cl- to also be included under in the notion of prejudice reduction, bias, to crimes, human rights education, etc. Both increased Jewish advocacy and education will impact as well on how the English are dealing with their growing multi-faceted Muslim population. Since Sens- sensitivity, sensitivity. Um, to Muslims and their needs, runs, today runs into conflict with the fear of a growing radical Islamic f- faction developing within the country. Britain is struggling to reconcile its longstanding romanticized affair with the Arab world, its fear of possibly possible growing radical movements directly under its nose, and a history of active as well as latent anti-Semitism. This also explains in part Britain's sympathetic views of the plight of the Palestinian underdogs, despite Israel's dog in pursuit of democratic values. Finally, it is necessary to consider what one now can expect in the fight against anti-Semitism from the new David Cameron-led, conservative, liberal, Democratic coalition government. Cameron Cameron did not distinguish himself during his recent hopscotch trip through through the world's hotspots, especially when he used his visit to Turkey to reiterate his government's criticism of Israel's handling of the Gaza flotilla. Israel might have been worthy of disagreement for its action, but its remarks were a necessary and gratuitous slap at Israel while visiting the other major national player in the incident. In addition, this new government needs to to prove to the Jewish community that indeed it is not following those forces in the country as well as those in its liberal democratic coalition wing who appear to be willing to accept the linkage of Jews and Israel implicitly, if not explicitly. While Anglo-Jewish leaders can and should be using these moments in the early months of the new government, even though it is beset with serious economic issues to lobby aggressively for increased funding for community protection. anti semitic Acts are racist. Efforts can be made to join these issues so that additional resources are available to protect Jews, Jewish institutions, synagogues, and schools. Jews do not need to accept excuses of money, no money, bad times, not now, Israel, or other crises. Fighting and preventing anti-Semitism is an essential part of the role of the government. Providing funds for victims of anti-Semitism is not sufficient. Part of the reason the state is not as aggressive in preventing anti-Semitism and antisemitism all bias points might well be because Jews, like all English, do not want to stand up and actively pressure their government. If Jews wish to stay in England, they need to change themselves and how they act. They need to be proud English Jews and not weak Jews. CST should continue its own independent monitoring and research function, as well as liaisoning with police. It can also assist the community and the police with its own effective alert system. But it should not be performing the role of the state. Thank you. For your
1: presentation, for your judicious analysis, and for your prescriptions at the end, which I think are uh, important in the context of interventions against anti-Semitism, I, in some ways, am responsible for your being here, because I <coughs> thought the rubric of inter- interventions against anti-Semitism was something that really needed to be talked about. And I'm particularly thankful to have uh, David Feldman of the New Paris uh, Institute for the Study of Anti-Semitism here, along with, along with Dave Hirsch, who, in, in my estimation, in terms of the intellectual battle against uh, <coughs> against anti-Semitism, is really uh, leading the charge with his engaged website. We will talk about that in my presentation. and. Um, <coughs> I, I, I hope that we can have time for a little bit of a colloquy or dialogue uh, at the end. I changed my title a little bit, it's now Interventions Against Anti-Semitism in the UK, Strategic Topologies. For those of us in the communications business, finding the right word can be a challenge. When talking about anti-Semitism, specifically when discussing the subject of responding to it, this task assumes complexities all its own. Personally, I feel I tend to avoid the words that suggest sudden fighting or battling. Metaphors like these seem too anthropomorphic and imply that anti-Semitism is a unified concept rather than a multifaceted phenomenon that is constantly morphing, recombining, and adapting to fit contemporary circumstances. On the other hand, in one important aspect, the fighting metaphor is useful it does suggest that we can devise strategies against it, which has the psychological appeal of implying that we can do something about it. It suggests that when it comes to finding countervisions against anti-Semitism, some frontal, some indirect, strategic thinking is both involved and I would argue, required. Those of you who know me, and are familiar with the kind of work that I initiated at the European Institute for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism know that the need for coherent strategic initiatives against antisemitism are indispensable, and unfortunately, a much overlooked field of inquiry. So let's start with first principles. If we begin with the assumption that interventions are a good thing, and by good I include the idea of efficacious, then it is equally essential that we need to look at what works. And this is what I want to do here today, to use Britain or the UK as a test case, as an example of where interventions have been carried out and to offer some frameworks for evaluating how they've worked in various degrees of success. I recognize there's a certain iffy quality to using the term degrees of success when it comes to conventional perceptions of anti-Semitism. For most casual observers, anti-Semitism in the UK hovers somewhere between the endemic and the rampant. Indeed, I sometimes feel that just by putting the two words, anti-Semitism and UK, together in opposition, I run the risk of reinforcing the conventional wisdom that in Britain the two terms are coterminous. Even before Sean Paris made his now famous remarks to Benny Morris, that there is there's a growing perception that Britain is an anti-Semitic country, reinforced by popular responses to the writings of Melanie Phillips. Anthony Julius, Dennis McShane, and others. For sociological and linguistic reasons, I don't think the formulation can be justified. And I agree with Anthony Julius' formulation that he makes in a recent interview in Haaretz. When asked to respond to President Sherman Perez's comments about anti-Semitism, Britain Julius responded, it is patently true that there has been a significant and complicated element of anti-Semitism, element of anti-Semitism in English attitudes towards Jews in relations with Israel. There is also, he said, a tendency among the Anglo-Jewish establishment to deny it out, out, des- <coughs> out of desire to fit in with a larger political establishment. But like every judgment that in that two-sentence soundbite, he said, Harris gets it wrong, or rather, partly wrong. To him, I would say, yes, there is anti-Semitism, but British attitudes and actions cannot be understood only in that prison. Now, here's the problem. If a country is inherently anti-Semitic, then all interventions are essentially fruitless, at most. And if that's the case, the best thing we can do is basically cope or emigrate, which British Jews seem to be doing in increasing numbers. Indeed, in the recent report on the British Attitude Towards Israel published by the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, 34% describe themselves as likely, quote unquote, or very likely to move to Israel. But for those of us who opt to stay and roll up their sleeves, and logic dictates on a realistic and philosophical level that there are certain things that can be done to curtail it, turn it back, stop it or somehow even neutralized it. With that in mind, I'd like to posit that there are four, that there are interventions that we can evaluate in terms of UK efforts. I propose that there are four broad areas of intervention. Legal, political, educational, and cultural. Or to phrase it differently, there are four means Or tools that can be used to contain, contain curtail, or invest in scenarios, neutralize anti-Semitism and its impact. Law, politics, education, culture. Admittedly, this is a functionalist approach, and consequently, there are basic questions that need to be asked. How does one measure the impact of anti-Semitism, and by the same token, quantify whether intervention A has been effective in reducing it, as opposed to intervention B? Secondly, how does one measure, let alone qualify, quantify success? There are areas required. These are areas where I to future research and scientific precision and may, on some level, touch on the field of social psychology. I'm now thinking about the field of prejudice reduction and other cognitive therapy techniques, which, as an aside, my own preliminary research reveals is a glaringly unexplored area of independent research. But returning to our theme. One of the four in, of the four interventions—legal, political, educational, and culture—it's helpful to distinguish between soft and hard interventions. Soft interventions are interventions which are calibrated to the expressions of anti-Semitism of a less threatening variety. Under this category, which may be determined by both objective and subjective criteria, we can subsume casual, social, genteel, commonplace, and cultural expressions all the way down all the way to those which may reflect varying degrees of what could be described as right-wing cant or non-ideological hard left stereotypes. One of the hallmarks of this level of anti-Semitism is that it contains echoes or resonances of Jewish conspiracy or, or classic anti-Semitic tropes, but they are not deemed to be so virulent or embedded that a person who holds them cannot change or, his or her mind. This is a critical component. Hence, the typical educational intervention operates from the philosophical principle that an indeterminate but somehow sufficient knowledge of understanding of, and here the subject gets tricky, uh, what piece of knowledge, what knowledge trajectory can we try to relate that will somehow make people see the problem or danger of anti-Semitism? Do we set out to explain the nature of anti-Semitism, the history of anti-Semitism? the symbolism and hurtfulness of anti-Semitism? Or do we approach things from a more elevated level and seek to impart Jewish knowledge? What issues can we take, after all, that will impart just the right amount of information and understanding that will create a kind of tipping point inside a person's head, whereby they won't want to speak, behave, act in a such massively ignorant way? In the UK, a variety of educational efforts exist that either directly or indirectly address anti-Semitism. Some, like the previously mentioned publication of the Community Securities Trust anti-Semitism report, are clearly designed to educate both the Jewish and non-Jewish public to the op- and the objective and measurable extent to which anti-Semitism is manifesting itself during a 12-month period. These reports have been published for tw- close to 20 years. It could be argued, based on their utility for the media and for the police, government, as well as general readers, the role has played that has been immense. Recently, CST's new annual report on anti-Semitic discourse, while well, only begun in 2008, plays an even more explicitly educational role. Primarily because of subject matter. <coughs> in effect, the presence of anti-Semitic ideas, themes, and, <clears throat> and what I referred to in a previous context as topo or stereotypes requires more explication than incidents. So, In other words, in order to identify an anti-Semitic trope, you need to know something about the structure and logic of anti-Semitic ideas. In addition, CST published a handbook which is distributed to campuses throughout the UK in order to address a growing global phenomenon of campus-based anti-Semitism, often combined with the vilification and demonization of Israel. This booklet called A Student's Guide to Anti-Semitism on Campus is specifically geared toward providing students with a detailed but practical compendium of what could be called students' legal rights vis-a-vis anti-Semitism. While this publication overlaps with the legal intervention category, because of its rich informational nature, I think its role is really more clearly educational. Other educational interventions in the UK abound or refer to the Holocaust Education Trust, interfaith al- e- efforts such as Three Faith Forum, Council of Christians and Jews, al- al- Board of Deputies, and so on and so forth. Now comes cultural interventions. By cultural interventions, I seek to assume those efforts to define, call out, explain, identify, and shame the anti-Semitism, whether by deed or discourse, that can't conveniently be placed in the other rubric. Insofar as writers, be journalists, academics, artists, analysts, pundits, editors, columnists, bloggers, contribute to a writing and reading culture, OK, or what might be glibly called the intellectual sector, the term culture has merit. As a synonym for what could be called high culture of the arts, it doesn't, at least not in the context of anti-Semitism. Thus, when a writer such as Howard Jacobson, in his latest satirical novel, The Finkler Question, or in his weekly columns he writes for The Independent, on the one end of the serious scale, all the way down to Anthony Julius, whose monumental trials of the diaspora covering centuries of English anti-Semitism, when he refers to his work, as he did in an interview I had with the Jerusalem report, as an intervention, I think it's important to take that notion seriously. By the same token, when a BBC program called Who Do You Think You Are follows celebrities or public persona as they retrace their roots, in many cases Jewish ones, in one case, Jerry Springer, and went all the way back in in, in this journey to pre-Hitler Germany before cultural anti-Semitism turned political. While it may be stretching the notion of an intervention somewhat, by the same token, if it serves to broaden understanding of anti-Jewish prejudice, it is is insofar as it's explicitly non-didactic, therefore differentiating it from educational interventions. Also, in terms of culture, we need to examine the role of comedy. What role does comedy play in detoxifying hatred, or draining anti-Jewish prejudice of some of its venom? And particularly, I've been thinking of the film The Infidel, about a Muslim who discovers, in fact, he's Jewish. It's actually quite funny. By comedian and writer David Baddiel, who in a recent interview, just prior to the release of the DVD, another way you can get it, uh, (coughs) from Amazon or whatever, laughter he says can be used as a weapon. And it can be used to preserve bullies, but much more often it's healing. It's a bonding action. Laughter can bring us together, not pull us apart, and I believe that quality is, much, is most useful when applied to the delicate and challenging areas. And that's where it's most important. Educational, cultural, <coughs> now comes legal. If educational and cultural interventions against anti Semitism are of the soft variety, this brings us to the two hard interventions those which use law or what could be called the legal process or legislative process to seek remedies or antidotes to the phenomenon, those which were even more directly facing head on, i.e. in political channels. It's the latter two, particularly the political category of areas where I believe the United Kingdom has distinguished itself in ways that have not received significant analysis or attention. Let's take the idea of legal intervention. First, because in some ways, it's the most familiar for us and for which there are probably more parallels internationally than others. I refer to those for whom overt anti-Jewish prejudice or Holocaust denial is an actionable offense. In terms of other legal interventions, the UK is not unique. As in the United States, depending upon the circumstances and the way it's carried out, it may be contributing to the factor as a hate crime. And therefore, in the severest case, it's actionable. There's an entire literature on UK hate crimes, what constitutes hate speech, whether it needs to be accompanied by an action or a deed, whether it violates freedom of speech, under what circumstances, etc. But my interest is not in that level of detail. The important thing for this discussion is that an important index is how seriously anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic manifestations are regarded on the elite level can be seen by the way in which law enforcement authorities, such as Scotland and regard the work of the Community Security Trust. In other words, both CST and the Metropolitan Police, as well as the Constabulary throughout the UK, <coughs> have a sophisticated means of identifying and recording anti-Semitic instances and share this information. CST, in other words, is, is acting on a legal intervention uh, as a part of a legal intervention component. Part of the seriousness which the UK, and in particular the Labour government has traditionally viewed anti-Semitism, stems from the way that racist violence was thrust into a public and, private, and public policy agenda in the wake of the Inquiry of the Death of Stephen Lawrence. For more than a decade, the Labour-led government had taken the view that the legislation against racially motivated violence is a key form of intervention against crime and disorder. As it happens in this field of research, my close friend and colleague Paul Gansky has investigated and explored in some depth, not the least of which is a monograph he published <coughs> called Understanding and Addressing the Nazi Guard Intervening Against Anti-Semitic Discourse, and commissioned by the UK's Department of Communities and local government. In addition, for the last two years, CST has commenced the publication work to be considered a more subtle and hard to find manifestations, namely anti-Semitic discourse. While not of unique coinage, the very flagging of anti-Semitic discourse as an area possibly in need of legislative remedies in the UK emerged with the publication of the all party parliamentary inquiry into anti-Semitism in 2005. So it's important to acknowledge that the very coinage of a term, a phrase, such as uh, anti-Semitic discourse, in a way, is a kind of intellectual or cognitive intervention. By calling something an anti-Semitic discourse, one creates a category that is both conceptually useful and and one step removed from the notion of motivation. You can say, in other words, somebody is echoing anti-Semitic themes or stereotypes in your conversation with somebody without necessarily thinking that you are, or having the other person think that you are actually talking about what they are motivated by, or, or that you're peering into their soul. As other scholars have pointed out, the emphasis of Holocaust denial legislation is spotting at best, especially in countries where the law becomes a target of repeated legal challenges. And this brings us to the fourth, and perhaps most universally understood form of intervention which I refer to under the category of political. Of all the four types, this is the one with which we are arguably the most familiar. Political interventions can take the form of everything from formal declarations by government and international bodies right down to behind closed doors and words or messages conveyed by a host of quote unquote special advisors, back channel conduits, as I guarantee were utilized when Prime Minister David Cameron chose, to use the unfortunate term, prison camp, to refer to the quality of life in Gaza during his visit to Turkey earlier this month. Globally, a number and variety of political interventions against anti-Semitism are manifold. Each needs to be examined in its own right. Indeed, the subject itself is worthy of a monogram. In the UK, as Gill has mentioned, the two political interventions that have generated some interest across the pond are the academic boycott of Israel, which is part of the larger Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS movement, and the all-party parliamentary inquiry into anti-Semitism. Now, this is curious because I don't think it got the of publicity that it deserved in the United States. In terms of the academic boycott, the test case, I believe, that served as an exemplar of political intervention was to stop the boycott initiative. A coordinated effort which brought together a coalition of mainstream Jewish organizations, including the of Deputies of British Jews, the Jewish Leadership Council, the Community Security and Trust, the Academic Friends of Israel, Labour, Conservative, and Liberal Democratic Friends of Israel, the Engage website, which Helen lead in charge, and coordinated by the British Israel Communications and Media Center, chaired by the high media profile Melvin Bragg, Chancellor of Leeds University and Argentina. Okay, so what you had really was you had a concerted effort. People came together, and then what happened? Using politically sophisticated and strategically interlocking parts, including full-page advertisements. Now, let me tell you something: the British Jewish community doesn't do full-page ads. They just don't do it. They don't put their head above the parapet. It's not like ADL. It's not like the United States full-page ads by the American Jewish community telling you exactly where they stand on a particular issue. It's just not done. Okay, so it was mega that this happened in the UK. And, and the ads were quite sophisticated. Because they, they focused on academic freedom, British values of fair prey, and never once used the term anti-Semitism. And they took some flack for that. Because they no, it, it should mention anti-Semitic. It's black, that it should be anti-Semitic. And they said, no, we need a broad coalition. We're not going to mention anti-Semitism because it may be a part anti-Semitic, but the fact of the matter is we want allies. And so we're gonna get out, we're gonna get we're gonna get Melvin Bragg on board, we're gonna get all and, and 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 pay attention. The anti-boycott had now listened. <clears throat> uh-huh. Right. The anti-boycott message of the campaign was endorsed by a majority of UK newsbreakers, including the Guardian and the Independent, and was amplified by high profile lobbying of university chancellors and given pro bono legal uh, help from UK attorney. Anthony Julius and the American trial attorney Alan Dershowitz. Polit- political in its, in its broader public reach, so far it was carried out by the wider public space and involved in the knowledge of understanding and ability to navigate and make strategic interventions to the appropriate op- openings in the hierarchy and structure of the university and colleges union, the UCU boycott call eventually collapsed when the union's lawyers conceded that enacting the boycott would violate the UK's discrimination. Now, let me just tell you that hey, suddenly it stopped. And I don't think anybody really got concern is justified. But I would equally argue that for many of our colleagues, friends, and associates who don't have the luxury of coming to international conclaves on anti-Semitism, that part of that same concern stems from an inability to properly analyze and even grade the danger levels of various forms of anti-Semitism, and to recognize, in principle and in practice, that calibrated interventions can and do work. Measuring their success and efficacy as well as differentiating between cultures and countries. And I just heard the phrase geographic, what was it? Uh, Aryeh, what was your term? Locational. Uh, Locational. Locational what? Antisemitism. Locational anti-Semitism. In other words, it varies from location to location. Measuring their success and efficacy, as well as differentiating between cultures and countries, is another matter altogether. It is a field of inquiry that is in need of urgent attention and further research if we are, ga- or we are able to plot strategies against it. Thank you very much.
2: Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm not going to re- repeat <laughs> some of the stuff that uh, we've heard up to now, because uh, I agree with, obviously, most of the analysis is actually factually correct. Um, but I want to talk, I mean, the session itself, you know, I'm Barry Cosman, um, uh, <laughs> in case anybody doesn't know and looked at their program. This session is supposed to deal with the, I think, with the relationship between analysis and action. That. That's, that's what this is. Um, And to some extent, we're talking about reversing what is perceived to be a a kind of historically or traditionally defensive posture of Anglo-Jury, and try to change it, I would suggest, to go on the the, uh, offensive against what is perceived as a a new bout of anti-Semitism in the UK. Um, Now, why is is Britain important? Why is Judeophobia um, not just a local problem? And one of the facts is, and, and it's quite important to realize this, is that anti-Semitism in Britain has a worldwide global impact on Israel, through, the, um, through Britain's location in the European Union, but above all, perhaps, because Britain is, and London especially, is the kind of historic, cultural, and media capital of the English-speaking world. Britain has the second after the United States, the second largest number of foreign students. Right? Large numbers of students from Africa and Asia go to Britain to be educated. Um, Americans. It is the largest location for a semester or a year abroad for American students. Think of all the Rhodes Scholars who will take leadership positions in the American society, eventually, who are exposed to at least a year in the anti-Zionist atmosphere of Oxford today. So London, of course, is an important location um, for a lot of anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic activity. Now, the enemy, and I'll use that term quite clearly, realized that is why they have made such an important investment in Londonistan. That term, Lundinistan, is a correct assessment of what has gone on. They recognise that it's an important location for their cultural political war, which is, has a global strategy. Now, that's, that's the importance of why we put this in a context why it's important. Now, one of the consequences. So there's two levels. Of this. One is the international, and then there's the interest of the of the Jews living in Britain. Right now, it could be that those interests might clash case. and that's one of the issues we haven't actually discussed here. But I would suggest that you know the publication of anti-Jewess's an authoritative book on British anti-Semitism. Likely the, the reaction is would well, be an acceptance that the well-documented what he calls inventiveness of anti-Semitism, the problem will be always be with us, will be you know, accepted. Uh, my years of involvement in um, communal defense and academic study, which began actually in you know, 1974, unfortunately, I have to say, um, leads me to predict that the community's reaction um, will be at the individual and collective level, which accepting that this prevailing situation is inevitable. Um, and uh, they'll continue what I would see existing policies, which are, you know, very good tactically. But as we've heard from Winston and from Gill, um, but what, what Gill has suggested, and I would also second it, is that they're good on the tactics, but they're not good on the strategy. And anybody who knows military type of stuff. I don't know what clouds it is, but but you know, there's a difference between operations, tactics, and strategy. Right? You can win battles and lose the war. Um, The the kind of community, the prevailing situation is is a defensive posture, it's a holding action against hostile forces. Um, The results and over-reliance, as we've heard, on on the Community Security Trust, individual legal protections under the Race Relations Act. Um, The issue of group defamation, the image of the Jewish society, the legitimacy of Zionism has not and will not be adequately addressed by this. Um, I'm going to suggest that, the, that, that in fact the British have to look, I'm not going to provide you all the, all the <coughs> mechanisms now, but they will have to go into a proactive policies required if British juries to survive as, as, as a self-respecting and viable community. Um, and we've heard that the, you know, I've done demographics of this kind of, of, of the Jewish community in t- doing that in the United States in the last 30 years, um, and it has seen a 40% reduction. In its population, the fact that it's to me, it's a remarkable, uh, an amazing um, finding that for 34% of the under 40 say it's fairly likely or very likely that they'll uh, will live in Israel for an established Jewish Western community, which is not uh, suffering from economic dislocation. It's an amazing admission, right? Whatever they say on other things, that actually is, is I think very revealing. Um, and since they, you know. The, the Jewish uh, response to anti-Semitism also, I think, um, over this period, has suffered from a bit of historical amnesia. As a result, that previous proactive strategies have been forgotten. Um, when I went in, first met in the Board of Deputies as research director in seventy-four, you had the last of the, of the kind of World War II generation, the 43 group of people who'd fought mostly and things like that. But what they had at that time was a very um, Good, um, politically, or political activism with local people who were very much on the ground. It wasn't a Stadlinut approach, right? In fact, the Stadlinut approach is not even correct today. Stadlinut was 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 is the concept that communal leadership um, should rely on influential and political community-connected Jews. But if you look at the leadership of British Jewry, those are not the people who we are in control. So what you have is a loss of political savoir-faire, a failure to actively consider mobilisation in certain ways, a lack of any consideration of, of coalition building, um, which would might make their enemies less, more cautious, or less triumphalist, uh, and keep them on the back foot, and to some extent tone down the rhetoric of its activities against the community. Now, British Jewish, uh, jury finds coalition building, I think, difficult, because it has no vision of what its place, role, well, or unique contribution to British society should be. If you are a diaspora community, you have to have some idea of what, what, what you are and, and, and who you are. There's a collective failure of imagination to see the possibilities of the moment. Um, the community's lack of self-awareness, one would suggest a sense of uh, solidarity and, and sometimes self-esteem, is of course due to an educational deficit. The people I dealt with in the 1970s, who never went to university, were much more aware of Jewish history, they were much better educated politically than the leadership did that, who were basically umpirets. That's the only thing you can say ignoramuses, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, of, of, various descriptions. It's the only way one has to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, tell the truth to power to some extent. So they felt, you know, the, the leadership doesn't even know you know, what the role was of, of neither the, the Jewish youngsters of the kind of moses That statman thing. moses Montefiore at least, put his money where his mouth was, he, and actually, as an, an elderly man, went off in a carriage to speak to the Sultan to go to the Tsar. He actually did something. I mean, uh, he, he, you know, to deal with Damascus blood libels, the pogroms, Few leaders today are actually willing to do that. I don't see them using their wealth or their social capital in pursuit of justice. So, what to prevent their people being maligned? I mean, it was very, very difficult for the British jury um, to raise the money to defend Deborah Lipstadt. And I'm going to talk about that whole issue of the libel, case. But that was, you know, American money that had to come in to actually defend Deborah in the courts uh, against Irving. Right? And if you can't fight <laughs> David Irving, who the hell are you going to fight? he's a classic 1930s bi- anti-Semite, you know? You're not going to do much against jihadists if you can't handle uh, you know, the last quarter. Um, you know, the one exception to this is, 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 of course, this campus scene that we, we refer to. The Union to Jewish Students. Activist post, immersed itself in student politics, done a very good job and actually is a model of coalition uh, building strategy. Um, Why this success is not emulated, nationally, political scene, has always been to me be a, a, a puzzle. Um, part of it is historical ignorance and political inertia, and to some extent, naivety. And the fact that that UJS leadership actually is part of that immigration. But, but if you look at most of the leaders, um, uh, my daughter was on the executive of the, of the uh, National Union of Students a few years ago. Most of the people who were in, in UJS, National leader. Most of that student leadership today is in Canada, in the United States, and in Israel. I mean, it's, it's a very good example of, of, the, of the loss of talent, um, but it's you know, which, which creates this, this cycle of, of decline. Now, the, the nexus of relationship between organisational structure, community leadership, collective morale, and the ability to deal with external threats like uh, anti-Semitism, was the focus of something I tried to do at JPR, my short stem back in Britain between 1999 and 2005, the community of communities report. Um, it's documented clear that only a kind of self-aware, Jewish, confident Jewish community that adopted a kind of holistic approach could meet the challenges of the 21st century, and particularly the threat for new types of anti-Semitism, posing as anti zionism um, So what's unique about the situation in the UK, particularly more so than, than some other countries? Now, anti-Semites in, the, in, in Britain, as everywhere else, they create anti-Semitism because it serves their personal, their psychological, political needs, as, you know, as well as being, haters and an opportunist. And so the result is, at the moment, as we know, is a kind of temporary, as you heard from Chávez, it seems to be the most amazing the ability to create this brown, red, green uh, coalition. Uh, but you see echoes of that everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, as regards the, the, the far right and the and, and the Islamists there's not much British jury can do about that. They're not they haven't really got the resources or anything. That's worldwide struggle probably had to be led by the United States and, and Israel. Um, they also of course as as Gil has pointed out the law and order and security problem for the state, and that's where it has to that's where that those particular problems have to be transferred. A low, a small voluntaristic community cannot deal with those kinds of state-sponsored terrorism, etc. Um, the danger, however, is, 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 that, um, is, is perhaps this liberal left kind of anti-Semitism, which is even more un- opportunistic. Um, the danger is uh, when these kind of anti-Semitic oil that are put out in, in media become accepted and accepted discourse, they create a trend which then affects the mainstream of society. And one, one's beginning to see these things um, adopted in mainstream society. I and mean, in the last uh, four or five years, what was regarded as the fringe and was in the garden is now living this kind of Daily Telegraph kind of people. Um, now, one of the, um, I guess, issues that we have to face is that um, in Britain, and uh, it's probably, not, probably undiplomatic of me to say this, is complete com- combating the new anti-Semitism of this kind of uh, cultural, political angle there is the, the community is compromised what we might would call by renegade Jews I guess uh, as in the old USSR um, comrades anxious to ingratiate themselves and gain standing or career in preferment as good Jews by denouncing other Jews um, Judaism and Israel now they often as often lead the boycotts, and the demos against Israel, they encourage the media, so they're politically very, very clever at using the Holocaust card, speaking of they got like, some great, great uncle somewhere who died in Auschwitz or something, and that gives them the moral authority to you know, blast with you know, whoever the Jewish organization they like. Unfortunately, um, these kind of Jews believe that in order to carry favor of the powers that be on the campus or in the editorial office, um, they have to conform to prevailing fashion. And of course, this is a, this is a circular syndrome. The more the worse the McCarthyite atmosphere becomes, the more the people there's a need for people to to do this. Um, so it leads to behaviour, of course, reminiscent in some cases of a farcical nature, like Stalinist show trials, where individuals self-flagellate themselves and admit to preposterous tales of guilt. Um, this McCarthyite atmosphere is creates a situation where Jews need to denounce other Jews uh, for being too loyal to the Jewish people. Um, a climate of oppression, which you can kind of, you've got a Jewish version of Uncle Tom, kind of Uncle Mo, you know, this sort of figure. The good, happy, anxious Jew, ready to join any demonstration against Israel, sign any petition, uh, lambasting uh, the government of Israel or Zionist organisations, are rushing to get on the TV to narrate documentaries. In effect, um, supporting prop of those who want to kill other Jews or uh, <laughs> destroy those bad Jews, anyway. Um, so then, you know, the, what do you do with it? You know, Jews for everybody else's country right and wrong kind of game? Now, one of the issues, one of the responses, as you can call these people, it's been down here, self-hating Jews. Um, many of these Jews are undoubtedly stuck in the 1930s time war. Uh, they're in denial. Um, unless their Arab and radical Euro- European friends actually donned the brown shirt and the swastika and armband and jack Brooks, of course the swastika on the star of those on the, on the, on the uh, Israeli flag, does not count. Um, they refuse to recognize that any of the people around them have actually an animus against Jews per se, uh, or Judaism or, or Jewish people. Um, you know, from the kind of independent Jewish voices constituency and, and those kinds of folks, and, some of you find that too moderate view. view. Um, anti antisemitism is a careerist and ideological position. Um, it's not a psychological pathology, however. It's wrong, it's inaccurate, self-defeating to call such people self-hating Jews. I believe they have career, clear careerist reasons for doing this in increasingly McCarthyite atmosphere. If it's not a psychological pathology, therefore it's a rationalist response to a situation where utopian ide- idealism is hegemonic. And that, I think, is, is, is crucial. So it's important that these kind of renegades are, are delegitimized. I don't know how you, I mean, the, the way this phenomenon can be defeated before it becomes widespread, and many more of them, the, the Jews, um, is to realize that it's a problem. Uh, and the, and the, the Jewish community, to some extent, is the first target of any education that uh, Winston is talking about. You have to secure your base before you can actually go out and argue with the wider society and convince your enemies to be you know, slightly nicer to you. Um, so we have to educate the Jewish community and the friends and, and relatives of many of these uh, mis-podonical renegades um, by offering explanations of their behaviour and motivations as well as historical and political arguments that undermine those kinds of ideological positions. Now, Obviously, I have made the analogy and reference to the USSR, and that's no accident. To understand a lot of, of, of the thinking of Britain, especially people who are 1968 generation, who now in, in, in poor positions in government, in their you know, pre retirement years, as it were, you have to understand the Marxian or Marxist nature of this. And, and anti Semitism historically has been a surrogate for anti capitalism. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it was a Nazi and a, and a communist uh, uh, idea. Um, I'll give you an example. Jack Hobson's book, Anti-Imperialism, Anti-Imperialism um, which was written in 1901 at the time of the South African War. was actually, the records it's one of his favourite books, and one of the most motivated books. Now, when I was in Africa teaching um, 20 years ago, I remember going to the University of Zambia, Osaka, and. Foreign languages publishing house in Moscow had donated fifteen copies. In fact, it was one of the largest the, 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 the book with the largest number in their library. Fifteen copies of Hobson's imperialism there in this in this New African uh, University Library. Didn't have any other books either. Um, so you know this is, this is important stuff. Um, and yet we have to remember the idealism of the of the Soviet Union. And, and <laughs> all the Jews who believed in the so, you know, The USSR was the first country to ban anti-Semitism and make it a legal offence. Ban 25, legal offence under the 37 right? Um So, that is the root. Stalin, Uncle Joe, loved euphemisms, <laughs> rootless cosmopolitans, Zionists. The KGB, the NKVD, knew who he meant when you know, who should go to the gulags. Um, but this, the, this, this, the, the, the fact that, that, that in the Soviet Union it was illegal to be anti-Semitic, and you couldn't use the word Jew or Frey as, as a form of attack on Jews, meant that that's why they began they, that the Zionism, the concept of Zionist, was, was used in the 30s, By the, in 37 38, began in, in the Soviet Union, anti-Zionism. Those of us, again, when I was in the 70s, I was involved in the Soviet Jury campaign. We already knew that it was going back to the 50s, to the Doctor's Plot in 48 and things like that. An anti-Zionist campaign, which was a client down on the Jews of the Soviet Union, always began with an article in Sovietische Heimat, which is the CP, the Jew, you know, the CP's of Yiddish magazine or journal. Communist Party, for those of who are not aware of what CP is. Um, you know, it, it always denounced Jewish so chauvinism or bourgeois Soviet activity. That's what it is. Now, these are the echoes that you hear on have Britain. It's ridiculous that nobody at this conference has talked about it. I know it's nice to talk about and jihad, or it but that is important as well, this whole history which hasn't been mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have to touch about the politics and history of the Jewish people. Lionel Cochin's history of Jews, Russia, and Soviet Union. should be read by every <laughs> Jewish leader and activist. You can't understand what's going on. Unless you have this background. Um, the community needs to make you know, these intellectual resources available. Um, Wiskovich's book, A Legal Obsession, uh, Lethal Obsession, is not available. This is where it becomes interesting. It's not available in British bookstores. Why is it not available? Because of Britain's defamation libel laws, increasingly, um, the 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 anti-pro-Jewish, pro-Zionist activities are affected by warfare as well as censorship. That any or, you know, you don't have to prove. We heard from um, uh, Shimon Samuels, this problem of in France that he had being, you know, under this case know yesterday a defamation against some Hezbollah, whatever it was, outfit uh, in France, which cost 100,000 euros to defend. Um, So this this whole question of Britain's defamation libel laws is it's crucial to understand that American writers are now threatened by this, and American publishers who want to sell in Britain and the Commonwealth uh, won't bring out books. Because you know, I don't want to talk about the publishing industry and its deals and how how, how you know, money is made by publishers, but they don't want to lose that market. And that's why Britain is important. The English speaking world is, is divided into two markets publishing wise, the United States and Canada, and then in Britain and the rest of the English speaking world. Don't understand that, you do not understand why the bookshelves are heavily increasingly heavily stacked by anti Zionist um, books without any adequate reply, because of this tactic. We also have the, you know, there's the, a the, the, the whole question. Now, looking at this whole question of, of higher education in the, in, in, in the UK from the, from the local uh, point of view, one of the issues there, know the UJS is a very good group, it's usually led by engineers and doctors and medical students and people like that. Because you have to understand that in Britain, most parts of Europe, there is no liberal arts higher, higher education. There's no general education. It's a form of specialist education. You cannot do what you do in the United States, but you can take people from the vet school and they have to do some kind of course in languages and give them you know, a little bit of semester of Hebrew or Holocaust studies, anything. It doesn't fit the, the, the model, um, those types of programs. There's no way of getting well, Jewish studies would be taken as an Oxford. I was associated a little bit. But there's, there's four students doing Jewish studies as an undergraduate. Because that's a specialism. Right? Well they have hundreds of Jewish students are doing physics and French and that's what else. They will never be exposed to any course in Jewish studies. So that's important. So what does that mean? It means you have to have to put put a lot of your work or into what you might call informal education, adult education, or which which is the opportunity in Britain we've never heard of, where large fifty percent of the Jewish students go to uh, Jewish schools. There has to be a very big 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 um, push to get Zionist and Jewish history, or maybe some even political uh, awareness, into the high school curriculum within the Jewish schools. All right, so one of the um, issues there uh, is that, um, also in Britain, is, that I've seen in the last uh, few decades, is something unusual, but I think it's beginning in the United States. Mary Chiswick has already spoken about the decline of the Jewish PhD. But if you look at British universities compared to 30 years ago, 40 years ago, especially 50 years ago, there aren't the great, there aren't the senior uh, Jewish professors that I remember. Um, the proportion and number, number and proportion of Jewish faculty in British universities has fallen. Well. Um, now that you know you could say it's a good battery, different Jews have gone off to equivalent of Wall Street and made themselves rich and famous that way in other things. Though. But it um, it has an effect. It means that uh, that um, there aren't. There's been many moderate Jewish academics, as we see, what I would call, it, in, in this wrong here from Britain, um, probably most of the minyan that exists here, uh, um, in, 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 in the sort of social sciences and humanities. Um, and and what you what the community has done is got a handful of poorly endowed placed. Uh, Interventions in, in British academia, without the, without, with no strategic thinking that actually you should take, you get one critical location and really stack it so it becomes a powerhouse of Jewish uh, uh, academic, uh, Israel studies, etc. Um, now that's important <laughs> because of the fact that the Muslims and Arabs have had a takeover of many British universities. Um, if you, the number of, you know, it's, in Oxford has its same chair. in, 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 in School of business, right? It's a surrey, wealthy Syrian that bought out the business school in, in Oxford. Um, international relations departments, the Middle East departments, all of them now are heavily funded. British universities are, are setting up sub-stations uh, or whatever you want to call it, sub-campuses in the Emirates, many Muslim countries. There's a, the, you know, the, the Arab-Muslim the Arab, uh, 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 endowment of chairs, and research centres, is, is, is well-documented. And one of the things one has to face, and probably actually announced, is that many academics in Britain are born and paid for. And, you know, that's, that's a reality. And somebody has to say that. Um, now I don't want to sort of, sort of, you know say that um, that, uh, it, that universities are dangerous. I work in one, um, several, um, but but we have to accept that advanced kind of education in, in the social sciences and humanities in the twenty first century produces social critics and, and uh, relativism uh, or is, or those kind of concepts that are prominent. Um, and, and, and academics indulge in critical thinking. They're not doers, but historically they tend to admire energetic doers. Um, change they can believe in. Um, the record is such that, that um, academics and intelligence have been um, supporters of many of the things that we're talking about. Um, it, you know, Julian Bender, with hangs on their written in 27, accused with Intellectuals and in universities in France and Germany of being apologists for crass nationalism, warmongering racism, the fashions of that age between the wars. in 27. Max Reinreich, uh wrote the book. You know, Hitler's professors in '46 showed that universities weren't friendly to the Jews. That Hitler's professors, the German academia, was part and parcel of the Nazi movement. Next weekend you know, it was. Um, they, the, uh, the update of that, of course, is Alan Steinweiss's book, if you are look at it, studying the Jewish scholarly anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. But actually, they invested a lot in Jewish studies. Okay? <laughs> the Nazis put more money into Jewish studies than Jewish community did. <laughs> they wanted to understand their enemy, the Jews didn't want to understand themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that these Middle Eastern studies political sociology departments are going in the same kind of direction. Uh, Max, I know there's a quote, here. Scholars prepared, instituted, and blessed program of verification, disenfranchisement, dispossession, expatriation, imprisonment, deportation, enslavement, torture. Well, the first half a dozen or so do apply to Israel. Israel Israelis to that. They haven't got to the mass murder and torture yet. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's, a, it's not surprising to me that the boycott campaign is not an economic boycott, but it's an academic boycott. That's where it's beginning. right? The Arab boycottage economic didn't work. So now there's a new kind of uh, takeover. Delegitimization, humanization, centered in, 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 in universities. Now, in Britain, it's actually a tradition. I was <laughs> asked to give some guest lectures, assignment lectures at the University of Manchester um, four or five years ago. It was a nice little number, as they say. So I actually went to into the records to find out, and I thought it was interesting, what happened in Manchester in January 1933, when Hitler was was, was elected. Was there any reaction at all? Well, what I found was there was one reaction, which was a Nazi takeover of the campus Lutheran church by German students and their friends to celebrate Hitler's victory. Now, this was a campus where Hein Weizmann was the professor of chemistry. And it's the second largest Jewish community in Britain. They had about 40,000 Jews in there. So you know, it must have been a message for the Jews that you know the university might not have been such a, such a wonderful, friendly, friendly territory. So it's this admission of what the realities of, of the world are that I think is, is part of part of what we have to do. But also train the students. You know, you're not actually on necessarily on, on friendly ground. So let me just come along with and end up with some you know strategic thinking. Um, I think what Jews have to do is, is, is obviously, and I could go on about the BBC and people like that and, and uh, the Guardian and all these kind of things, but you where know, the Jewish community has really, I mean, what you can get away with, I mean, actually there's a couple of things here which I think are important. Tom Paulin is the BBC's critic and cultural arbiter, at least he was a few years ago. Uh, his record has labeled the, the Israeli army as the Zionist SS. Uh, according to the Cairo Weekly, Allah ahram he incited terrorist killing of Israelis and, and American Jews he claimed it's a mistranslation from the Arabic he's still on the BBC A um, clear indication of the BBC's reputation this is paid for by Jewish taxpayers license fees I once came on to the Jewish community and said wish that Jews should actually organize looking for allies and boycott a boycott a, a, a you know sort of a, 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 a refusal to to pay the license fee the BBC's reputation middle is these um, you know, is such that the Sunday Times, London Sunday Times, 2003, reported that BBC's Arabic service counts Saddam as a listener. And according to the Brazilian sources, he called twice to say appreciated what was said on the BBC. You know, it's, it's an amazing situation of how these kind of people have got, you know, and, and, and they actually turn into the BBC no longer feels that it has to support Britain, it's the voice of Britain, it's some kind of globalised kind of thing that no, no longer has to support British policy. Hateful by the British taxpayers, but doesn't have any loyalty. It's, kind of, it's, got, it's, it's a globalised, it's got its own global um, uh, loyalty to third worldism, I assume. Um, so what should the Jews use? So I think they sometimes have to be a bit more articulate when they're wrong and hurt. Um, they need a strategy of, uh, of more to response. They need the value of intellectual tools to hear back. Um, they need to identify the gradations of prejudice, as, as, as both uh, my colleagues here have suggested. Perhaps use the term Judiophobia more than, than anti Semitism. Um, build coalitions with other threats groups, especially. I think that one of the things about British Jury is a classic case of Am Lovadad Yishkov. People dwell in the world. They do not see themselves as as looking for friends to uh, to to mobilise on you know on in, in their occasion. Um, and they have to you know look for people, I guess, who buy the Jewish narrative. And that would be people appreciate the, the Jewish economic, social success and achievement. People who like winners rather than people who are and and uh, are losers. Um, people who will. Um, who see that, you know, it's a democracy flourishing, difficult, hostile Middle East. People who appreciate, you know, advances in agriculture, medicine, all those kind of things. I guess, to some extent, although I'm not terribly religious myself, the fact is that they probably need people who believe that there's no kind of God who in history, I guess. Um, respect at least and know the, the, the Hebrew Bible, for whom the term promised land is not a, a phrase they've ever heard about. Um, and that's a small demographic Britain. One of the problems of Britain has been the collapse of, of, of Protestant Christianity, the Anglo-Protestant tradition you had in Britain balance. You had all these anti-semites we've heard about already, but you had a strong Restorationist, as you have. I mean, sort of an Anglo-Protestant Restorationist tradition, which is echoed now only in the of, you know South and Evangelical America. But you know, Gentile Zionists were very very important in in uh, in fact the, the Zionist movement. And, it, and its political work, um, in the early days, uh, well, it, in fact, establishing Israel. You know, all the wind gates of the world, all these kinds of folks, very, very important. Um, so I think that that, that is that real, realization um, uh, is, is, uh, is is important. And I, and I think perhaps that, that um, one could, I mean, there are two strategies, I guess. One is that um, you, 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 you give very rational, kinds of, of explanations um, to this kind of, uh, to the problems you have. You try and argue um, intellectually with with, with the uh, with this and you, um, and uh, or you decide um, to take a, a much more kind of cynical um, opportunistic response, that so you join up with anybody who doesn't like Muslims, anybody who doesn't like people. Who run populist campaigns and things like that? Um, these are these are political decisions. But the fact that nobody ever thinks about you know what is the best strategy at the moment, how how bad is the danger, right? Is it is the physical danger more more? I mean, is, is it more dangerous for the Jews the physical danger? Is it better to undermine what we might call Western liberalism and some democratic values in the, in, in, in this battle or not? But you have to. There's no thinking. To decide what those what what are the options on the table for the for Jewish for the, for the Jewish people the Jewish community in Britain, and I think that um, you know it's it's a it's an interesting uh, moment, and uh, we will see if whites and Jablonski's kind of methods will, will, will win. Um, I am also testing to say uh um response, and and I would make that point because. Although well, it sounds fanciful, one of the reasons for the way CST is organised, and I go back, I worked there when the Defence Department um, uh, moved the CSO off the CST, um, and I remember that. One of the reasons why the CST exists in the way it does, it is, to discipline the Jewish community and keep lots of people within the and the community, in, within, within the community and them. and make sure that there's no the harness type the Jewish response in Britain. Thank you. Do we have any time left for questions? Yes, sir. Yes,
1: uh, I really
3: appreciated learning a lot about the UK problems dealing with about it. anybody, all of you could respond to this. How do you create a balance between the, uh, whether you're on the, in the campus or in a larger uh, community, uh, between Jewish sectarian approaches to combating anti-Semitism and, and more pluralistic approaches? Uh, what's, what's the best way to do this? What's the best strategy uh, in balancing the, the two efforts? I think I think that's a very good question. I don't,
1: I don't know if we've actually looked at it. Uh, weighed up the options and framed it in that particular way. Um, I think you have to do a you have to go into the campuses themselves, <coughs> and see how the Union of Jewish Students and other Jewish organizations are actually doing that. Ask the question: What's it worked? What hasn't worked? You know, in terms of combating uh, certain uh, political movements on campuses or actions. Um, I don't know. It's a great question. I simply I can't really answer. I don't know about anybody else
0: only thing I was thinking of as, you, as I, and I, this is off the top, but you know, the, the ad about which was spoken, it was taken out of the papers, for example, in America, there, there would have brought in, if that was the strategy, they would have been able to find non-Jews to get on board that kind of, and that would have been the strategy to do it, uh, rather than be a parochial kind of, and leave out the word Jew. For you know, um, and so I think in America we can reach out more quickly and more effectively to other groups because I think, Sari uh, talked about that too, we do have intergroup relations, we have coalitions, we work with coalitions. Um, and I think that's different, dramatically so. And the whole community relations field in America, yes. in the Jewish community, I don't think it really exists. The, the, the notion. I mean, I'll give you one very personal example. But, um I've been involved in a group that works with the with the Presbyterian Church. It's a group that has been meeting now for the last five years to try to work on the issue of divestment. And as you probably, if you follow that detail, at their conference this July. There was a major effort to pass a resolution—a very, very ugly resolution on divestment—and the key people who opposed that resolution on the floor of their General Assembly were people that I have been involved with for the last five years, including going to Israel with them, Presbyterians—people um, who got it, who understood that you may, you and I, or we may disagree about policy. But divestment does not the strategy. There are ways to deal with those issues. So I think it's a lot of tough work, but ultimately can bring
2: fruitier fruit. I think we we had that that's an example where it worked. But it comes back to my point about if you don't know what kind of community all of your places in society. You don't really, you can't really do a coalition vote because you don't. You know, there's a variety of choices, and, and you can't decide who you're going to go. And, you know, if you're going to go. Well, I mean, the orthodox. I mean, let's take it the gay community. Well, the orthodox never wanted to go in with the gay community under any circumstances. Even though the gays were the only ones who actually were willing to do something like against Iranian, the Iranians. You know, say something. The Iranians. Ran, I remember. It part, I remember the park. The other one was a meeting in here, big meeting with the Shiites. And only the gay the community, community work, was willing to get out there and, and demonstrate the rest of you know, the Chief Rabbi thought this was dangerous. You know, he he was the I sh- said, there. <laughs> you know, he actually probably agreed with them.
3: You know, stoned them
2: up. Um, you yeah,
3: know, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem.
1: <laughs> so community <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, what, what, you're, what you want to do, you know, what, what you're about, I think that's what he's saying. Right. Yes. I just wanted to build on the, the question of
3: um, in terms of different generations, as we develop strategies and reach out, there's, there's a generation even here in this conference, and in terms of our, our strategies, I'm wondering what kind of thought you could get into that and some of the challenges that, that everybody, the corporate sector, every sector is having a challenge about reaching this next generation, and it goes way beyond creating a Facebook page, and this you know, yeah. I'm hearing too often from well, the world, just make a Facebook page, is that that's going to tie it up, you yeah. know? Well, I mean, I think that's a very
1: good question. I would start by, let's say, doing a survey. Because I know how uh, people of my age, 40s, so on and so forth, respond to anti-Semitism. I basically know what kind of goes on in their heads. When anti-Semitism comes up, how they think about it, how they respond to it, how they put it into their intellectual universe. I don't know how 18-year-olds 60 year olds or whatever. When confronted with anti-symptom, what goes on inside their head? I don't know what kind of thought process they to go through. I don't know whether they say, you know, I'm helpless, I don't want to deal with it, I want to bury it, you know, I want to move on. I don't I but I want to know. I want to know because and maybe, maybe their response to it, there are little pieces out of that response and out of that survey and quantifiable analysis, that maybe there are some solutions that we haven't even begun to look at because simply we're locked in a, different, in a generational. So I'm all for it, but that's why you've got to be able to have somebody say, wait a second, the solutions are out there. What we do is to know how to look for them, and maybe look at areas that we haven't looked before. That's what science does. It says, okay, where are we going to put the microscope? Where are we going to do our experiments? Well, okay, let's find out. You know, um, <coughs> the Bronson Foundation, a number of other foundations looked at the whole question post uh, post-2001, uh, and Intifada, and everything else, what was going on in terms of Israel's image on campus, right? And they wrote, they, they did a piece of analysis, Frank Lutz did it. It's called Israel in the Age of Eminem. You know, and a lot of people excoriated. you know, there, there was a lot of debate about it, and, and, and that just sort of dropped from the scene. But, you know, they took it seriously. They said, how is Israel being perceived on campus by this younger generation? And It was done with focus groups, and interesting stuff came out of it. Now, what did they do with it? What did they, how did they actualize those recommendations? I haven't a clue, but it's important to go back and take a look. And it's the same thing. How are you guys processing it? How are you guys dealing with it? What does it make you feel? You know, what does it make you think? I want to know these things. I really do, and I would love to be able to conduct that kind of a survey. And then say, well, what can we take from this? Are there little pieces of strategic interventions that we can actually do? Because you know, so maybe you'll find that, you know, what? You know, I've actually had some success dealing with it on a personal level, and actually taking my friend, you know, and bringing them to a shul or something. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm grasping, but <clears throat> who knows? You know, that's why I think you have to look at it creatively and say, wait a second, there are answers. Let's just change the spotlight, look around, see what we can do, try to tease some of that information out. Analyze it. Try to devise an experimental strategies to see if they work. Because it's not, you know, we have to take that attitude. So, great question. So, there's, there's a
0: thought I have that, you know, if, if you're dealing with the identified Interesting things also that I think was mentioned was that it sort of continues my own uh, sense is that those who identify Jewishly in the UK, younger people, are really saying, I'm out of here. I have, uh, let me tell you one tiny story. Uh, a PA working in Westminster, personal assistant working at Westminster, told me in, in an interview, he said, you know, this country's been wonderful. To Jewish, the country's been wonderful to me. I've uh, had wonderful opportunities. I'm advancing very rapidly. I had a great education. I'm about to get married. I'm not religious. I'm about to get married. If this keeps up, I'm out of here. I don't want to stay here. Now, in America, I mean, there could be a whole, di- if, if this person were identified Jewishly, their response would be, I mean, I'm in there. You know, they're not going to do this to me. What it's worth. Anybody else? Oh, sorry. It's not so much a question, just a, a, a you know, sort of a, a thought question, which is that you know, I watch my own son's. Uh, he's twelve, so he's in, he's, in, he's, in, he's he, you know he's in the sixth grade. And there's this generational thing. nothing, it's a non-issue, um, you know, it's a non-issue, racial issues, it's just a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Now he's younger, enough, but in between generations, there's a non-issue. And I think that, that with the younger generation, from his on to people 18, 20, 25, there's a presumption that we have solved these issues, that we live in a post-prejudicial society. There's an assumption that this is a post-prejudicial society, and therefore, if there's something like racism, of so it must be justified. The prejudice by
3: itself as a disease has been overcome. I don't know. That's what I'm getting from that generation. I am as well. Uh, I am as well. And it's from uh, my grandchildren here through the constituents in the synagogue, trying to get the younger generations involved to get them to think. Primarily, the people that attend the synagogue that are parents of the Bar and Bat Mitzvah are there because their parents are still alive and their parents want them Bar and Bat Mitzvah. As far as being friendly with other people, they don't think in terms of having with Jewish friends, it is all over. They think in terms of, I can marry anybody? I
2: don't have to pass this on. There are no problems. I am American, and I pass. Interesting. Very Let me just say something about I mean, one, one of the issues that I guess I'm getting at, what, what I was trying to point out is the generation that i that I, I meant to, like, was that they had a great sense of, Jewish solidarity, but also a sense of common destiny, right, as Jews. Now, the interesting thing is the Jews don't have that, maybe today. But everybody, what I've seen of of the people on the other side that we've been been hearing about, the rest of the Umar, have a tremendous sense of solidarity. There is no internal criticism, there is a tremendous sense of common destiny, right? So they're kind of, you know, what what, what we're saying is the 21st century world is being beaten by a kind of 19th century world at best, you know, that, those the, the the kind of the the, the kind of um, you want to call it the, the advantages of, of of the traditional world, right, can can offset the, the the economic and technological advantages of the 21st century. In the, the, the sense of loyalty that that the Muslims have, I mean, you know, the TV is, is probably an exception, but it's probably regarded as the, 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 the disloyal. Is
3: it um,
2: loyalty or fear? Well, I mean it's a matter of, of both. I mean, you know, so sort of, you know, there's two types of fear. You know, i have my throat cut, but in the old days, a lot of people, some of those people, why are they why are they sending me the to, the to be Put out of the will. You know, I mean, that's a form of fear as well, you know. they would be disinherited if they don't you know. So that's you know, these are all, there's all other types of social oppression psychological, so But I think you put your finger on it, which I think is quite an important issue for the for, for our times, as it were, and our types of liberal kind of what are we going to call it a Jewish people.
3: Sorry. What you're describing is you know, is is true of any immigrant group who's who's poor and comes in, they hold together.
0: And then when they make middle class, and all they start assimilating and, and go I think the big question we have about the Uba is do they want to assimilate like the in America's the Italians? The, the yeah. Italians held together, the Irish held
3: together, they were loyal until they moved out of the lower Manhattan and then they started mixing with everybody. Now we're all nuts. But will the Umas do it?
2: Will the Umas do that? Doesn't look like it. That way. But our only concern for them is because they don't like us. I mean, otherwise it would just be another social process. I mean, do we really care if the Slovaks or the Amish stay together? It's not a real issue. It's not, not a Jewish problem. This particular is a Jewish problem. You know, because, yeah. you know, that's, it's out, we know we have, we have some partial ownership of that problem, <laughs> <Because> <laughs> It's just a
3: Jewish problem. Like well, we have to frame it as a, an, American, yeah. an American problem. Yeah. We just frame it as a Jewish problem, we lose. We have to say, if you're coming to
2: this country, you need to be no, I'm, I'm, We're still in the British session, but it's particularly
0: right. Well, right, You can't go to Britain right. and have British experience anymore. you go to Britain, you gotta look for the British
3: experience.
1: Right? Correct. Erwin, earlier are yeah, which you know, I, I thought
3: your you know fourfold approach to strategic interventions is very useful in terms of the educational, the cultural, the political, and the legal
0: but much of the anti-Semitism today is itself organized around
3: how group anti-Semitism. So you've got you know from the previous panel, feminist anti-semitism, where you have uh, queers against Israeli really apartheid. I can go on you know, I'm should your fourfold approach also be somewhat inclusive or have targeted strategic responses, or targeted to specific groups around which the anti-Semitism springs from or is organized. In other words, targeting the feminist
1: etc. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Good. Well, that, was, that was just sort of corroboration you were offering. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. See, I think what you were doing precisely in the international field in terms of of, of, of looking at it within the framework of genocide and genocide, uh, 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 what's the word? Um, um, Incitement mm-hmm. It's critical putting that as a term, you know, on the map and, and, and using that as a weapon. Mm-hmm. It's very, very important to have to use that terminology. David Um
3: trying to put together some of the things which Barry was, has been talking about about the sort of, um, uh, our attenuation of identity and numbers in Anglo-Jewry, uh, together with the attempts at mobilisation against anti-Semitism, produces a sort of an uncomfortable, an uncomfortable question, which is: um, to what extent is mobilisation against anti-Semitism not only a mobilisation against? Something which is there, but a mobilization which is intended to um, preserve um, a Jewish identity, Jewish cohesiveness, which is um, uh, uh, which is being um, eroded both by the um, uh, uh, by the attractions of other countries, Israel and, and North America, and um, I'll
2: drive to avoid that. I think you know, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. I mean, I, in some ways, there's an opportunism of obviously organizations, careers of organizations that kind of get on board with this and see it perpetuating themselves or something. Kind of, you know, kind of institutional entrepreneurs. I was, you know I, was I, you know, I directed the 1990 National Jewish Population survey which it? It found, you know, 51% uh, uh, I can't remember the numbers and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew it I, you know, I was dealing ranges, I'm a statistician. Um but 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 the fact is that 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 um you know that the you know the, the it was a uh, led to this kind of um uh, you know the the uh the campaign called? I can not remember it. Um it's not outreach, it's um yeah, it, it was it was this you know the, the attempt to, to, to uh, renewal and Jewish renewal and Jewish renewal that kind of thing it was everybody got onto that and said, yeah, well, this, this is continuism. continuity, and that's yes. the word. Yes, the word is continuity. But it was a continuity response, and, and those, you know, a lot of organizations ran with that for their own needs and all the rest of it. I don't know, but, you know it's a it, challenging response kind of thing, what's well, organic, and what's artificial, and all the rest yes. of it. But you know, this, this cleans up the issue, right? I mean, to those people who say, you know, the, the, problem, the, problem, the problem, the challenge is the Jews are not quite sure where their boundaries are and who they are. What we've seen is, whether we like it or not, the guys who I saw on the, <laughs> on the TV and all these things yesterday are quite clear who who they're who they who they're after, you know? They're quite clear. Well, I mean, they, they at the moment, they've actually do most of the definitional boundary forming, do not they, right? So even though I turn around to have a good Jew, they might not agree with me tomorrow, right? Because I, I may have let Uncle Joe down or, or the local imam or something said something. or, or, or So I can, you know, suddenly, you know, Find myself like many really good communists, you know, in the gulag, along with all the Mensheviks, You know, it's, it's a terrible thing. So it, it's a real. It's a, it, and I think I think it's it's it, it, it's fraught with a lot of things because it's a continuing thing. One of the one of the problems we have here is this is not a photograph. It's a movie, It's a continuing <laughs> yeah, thing. It's, it, it's a kind of soap opera as well. It, it's, the characters continue there. But I think that's one of the, the reality of this is and it's very hard for people to say you know, and we're back to my the whole point which I started with which is Julius Books, it's always been with us, you know? It's present, It's gonna go and, and it reinvents itself. And he, he gets into that kind of thing. It's a concept I guess it, you know, you can make it post modernist so if you wanted to. But it's it's around, you know, it's 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 there and, and you're also gonna to have to deal with it and all the, the point is that individuals themselves will make decisions. And then somehow helpful activity makes the decision, but that, the, the, but the problem, and I was trying to point out, is legitimacy and even the the solidarity of of, of whatever it is, if they're a Cahilla or not. You know, this is the whole question: is what it is is your organisation and political institutions in leadership in relation to this? Right? It's, it
0: might say, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of agreeing with you. Thank you. <laughs> are, are you Say that your question, David, and the lady's question, and a few over here—they sort of all begin to talk about identify and how are they going to, going to respond. What is the identified core or nucleus? Will they stand up? Will they? Uh, how will they respond? I mean, we have an issue about how you deal with the not identified, which is a separate discussion. But if will they respond? Do they want to respond? Do they want to deal with it within? What? The so lady was. <laughs> and maybe, Okay. That's yes, fine. Good luck. Thank you. And all <laughs> questions can continue. Here or-